Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our, fathers, our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, it's great to be with you, and it's great to sing the songs of Christmas. I'm so thankful for the gifts that God has given us in this worship service. I'm reminded that he is the one who promises to build us up and that he does it through each other, that we are built up as a body. And so as we come to pray, I want to encourage you to pray for those around you, that we together would be able to hear God as he speaks to us through his word and that more than anything else, Jesus would be made great in our midst. So please pray with me. I'll start with a moment of silence. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us to each other. For the majority of us, there's nowhere else during the week where we come together and we sing the truths that you have revealed to us in your word. There's nowhere else that we come and are fed by your word. Father, we are very thankful that you have joined us together. And we ask you that it would be actually in our weakness as a body that your strength would be made known today. Father, we 
in every other aspect of our lives seek our own strength and to be recognized for it. And Father, honestly, when we come before you, we have to confess that we often do it for our own glory. But Father, you have reminded us by your word that our own glory won't amount to anything before you. That you have called us to come and exalt you and exalt Jesus. You have told us to rejoice. And even now, even in this passage that's before us, you have called us to consider the magnitude of the coming of Jesus as a baby as we approach Christmas. Father, I want to thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves, but you've given us your word. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you have said that you will take your word and plant it deep into our hearts and that you will bear the fruit of faith through your word preached. Father, we pray that though our weakness be present with us, that your strength would do what you have promised to do. Father, I pray that you would do more than any of us have asked for or imagined. That you would make Christ great before us. Father, help us as we turn to your word. Give us faith. Father, for those of us who are distracted by various things in our lives, both positive and negative, I pray that for the next few minutes, you would let us focus and you would allow us to see what you are showing us of Christ. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name with the great hope and the promise that you even now are seated at the Father's right hand and that you intercede for us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. We've been making our way through this first chapter of Luke, um, primarily in this Advent season, looking at Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. And now we've turned to Zechariah's prophecy. Mary's song, uh, we learned, taught us two things. One, what does it mean to exalt God? with our lives? And two, how might we rejoice in him? Today we turn to Zechariah's prophecy, and I think what it communicates to us is the magnitude and the importance of who Jesus is. You may be here today, and you may ask the question, what is so important about Christmas? Why is it so important that we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Why is Jesus so important and I want to say to understand that from Zechariah's prophecy, we need to sharpen the question. And the question is, why did God give Jesus to the Jews, God's chosen nation? That's where we have to start. Why did God give Jesus to the Jews? And I want to encourage us to look at three questions, and then we're just going to look at how this applies to our lives. As we look at the first part of Zechariah's prophecy, the first question is going to be this. What has God done in giving Jesus to the Jews? That's the first thing. 
The second thing is, why did God give Jesus to the Jews? That's the second. And then the third is this. What was God's goal in giving Jesus to the Jews? There's no doubt that Jesus made an impression in this world, right? Even the most skeptic among us agrees with that. Moon had given me uh, a book review of a new book that has come out called Dominion by a historian, Tom Holland. And the little bit of it that I've gotten into, it's, it's really fantastic. His argument is essentially this, that Jesus and his advent into the world changed the world ethically and morally to such a degree that to compare the world that we know today, the morals and the ethics of Western society with the Greeks and the Romans of Jesus' day is like comparing, the author says, a human being to a great lizard. (laughs) He said the moral and the ethical gulf between the two cultures is as great as civilization itself. Do you think that Jesus is that important? I want you to see today from Zechariah's words that Jesus' coming accomplished so much more than even that. So the first question is this. What has God done by giving Jesus to the Jews? Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, is the husband of Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, right? Zechariah was in the temple when Gabriel the angel came to Zechariah earlier in this this chapter of Luke and explains to Zechariah that Jesus is going to come, or that, that John the Baptist is going to come, that his wife Elizabeth in her old age and he in his old age will bear a child and that he is to name him John. And in doubt... Zechariah questions the angel Gabriel and is silenced. It's fascinating to hear, or to not hear, as it were, the silence of those nine months in Zechariah's life and how the nation of Israel had waited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for God to speak. And this Old Testament priest, Zechariah, when his mouth is opened, uses Old Testament language to describe the actions of God that God accomplished in sending or in giving Jesus to the Jews. And I want you to see it in the first few verses, 68 and 69, all right? This is what Zechariah says. After he writes on the tablet, you shall name him John, and his mouth is opened And he praises God. Verse 67 says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. There are three things that... Zacharias says that, Jesus, that God did. He visited his people first in verse 68. Now that doesn't mean that God came over to have a cup of coffee with his people Israel. To visit Israel is taking a, a statement, a concept from the Old Testament and applying it 
to the coming of Jesus. The promise that Zechariah has heard from Mary herself that God has said she is with child. A child who will be born, who is the son of David and the son of God. Zechariah says that God has visited us. Now, the place where that's used the most in the Old Testament is Exodus. When Moses goes to the people in Israel while they're in Egypt and says, God has visited us. And they listen to Moses and they say, indeed, God has visited us. He has come. He has seen our need. And he is meeting our need. And that's why Zechariah joins it with, he has visited us and he has redeemed his people. It might more woodenly be able to say he has worked redemption or he has accomplished deliverance. He has accomplished freedom for his people. That's the second word that he says, this is what God has done by giving Jesus to the Jews. And then the third thing that he says is in the next verse, 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This picture of a horn is the picture of power and might. Moses uses it as he blesses the tribes of Israel and says that God will raise up a horn of salvation from you. Uh, the horn of a bull, of the bull's force and its might, right? And we see horns on the warrior's heads. You want to know where else there are horns in the Old Testament? Even on the altar of God, proclaiming his power and his might. But this horn of salvation is specifically a horn of salvation, a horn of deliverance. And we are told that this horn is raised up in, in and from the house of David. Jeff has just talked about the Davidic line, the kings of Israel. And Zechariah proclaims and says, God has raised up one who will be mighty and who will be powerful for our salvation from the house of Israel as he prophesied, it says in verse 70. As he had planned all along, God prophesied through Nathan the prophet to King David himself in 2 Samuel 7 when he said he would raise up a king from his line who would rule forever. Moses prophesied to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 18 when he says that God will raise up another prophet like me for his people. And then we're told what that salvation is like in verse 71. It says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. It says strictly that the deliverance that is defined by the one who will bring it is defined as deliverance from our enemies and from the hand or the control of those who hate us. You can tell and listen to the language that there is no doubt that Zechariah and in turn Luke saw the gift of Jesus as a political action for the Jews, right? The question that was before us is what has God done by giving Jesus to the Jews? And Zechariah is saying God has visited us, God has redeemed us, or he has worked redemption for us, and God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's salvation defined by deliverance 
from our enemies in the hand or the control of those who hate us. That's the first thing that we see in Zechariah's prophecy that answers the question of the magnitude of Jesus. What did God accomplish by giving Jesus to the Jews? The second question that I asked you to consider is why did God give Jesus to the Jews? Why did he do it? If that's what he accomplished, why did he do it? And we see in verse 73 what he says. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That defines why God gave Jesus to the Jews. Two reasons. To bring about or to accomplish mercy to our fathers is what he says here. To accomplish the mercy is what your text says, the mercy promised, because that mercy is the word for God's covenant, loyal love. The promise that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, our fathers, right? That promise found, that oath found in Genesis 22 and Genesis 26. He says that it was to bring about that mercy, to remember his covenant, his relationship that he made with his people, right? And listen to how that covenant is defined. It's defined by the oath that he swore to Abraham in verse 73 is what we're told. And if we were to go back and look at that oath in Genesis 22 and 26, we would see that it's made up of three parts, this oath. It is made up of a promise that God made to Abraham to multiply his offspring. And many of you know this, as, as great as the stars are in the heaven, right? Or the sand on the seashore, we're told. And this is a big deal. Remember, Abram's name was Abram, meaning exalted father. But he was renamed Abraham, meaning the father of many. The father of many nations. The father of a multitude. That was the first thing. To multiply his offspring. The second thing was the gift of land. Your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies, as it says in Genesis 22. So it's not just land, but to possess the gates of their enemies is to possess control. It's to rule over, right? It's to remove the rule and the control of enemies and to rule over enemies. The gates were the place of judgment, in a city, the gates were the place where the king sat. And then finally, that oath included the third thing, a promise that all nations would be blessed. So the second question is, why did God give Jesus to the Jews? It was to bring about and to accomplish mercy. The mercy promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to remember his covenant defined by this oath. That's the second thing. The third and the last thing that we see in this section of, Isaiah, of Zechariah's prophecy, what was God's goal in giving Jesus to the Jews? This is the last thing that we need to understand, to understand the magnitude of Jesus. And this is found for us in verses 74 and 75. You can read them with me. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What was God's goal 
in giving Jesus to the Jews to grant to his people whom he had delivered from the hand, and remember the hand is the control of their enemies. He's rescued them from their control. He has granted them to serve him. To serve him. Now, if we were to look up that word in the Old Testament, the place where we see it most often repeated is Exodus, from the fourth chapter all the way through the tenth chapter. It's why Moses told Pharaoh that he ought to let God's people, the Israelites, go from Egypt so that they could go out into the wilderness, and it says, to serve God there. And to serve him means to worship him, but specifically to sacrifice to him. And that's why it was important that they be able to take their livestock with them, to sacrifice to God in the wilderness. So what was God's goal in giving Jesus to the Jews? It was to grant to his people, whom he had delivered from the hands of their enemies, to grant to them to serve him. But that service is defined by something here that's important to us. It's defined by this word fearlessly. That we would serve fearlessly. In fact, fearlessly is put in front of even the verb to serve him. That we would serve fearlessly having been delivered from our enemies. Now the interesting thing is God's people hadn't served him fearlessly since the garden. Even when they went to Mount Sinai, they were afraid of God when they saw him descend on the mountain. They said, Moses, you go talk to him. Don't let him come to us. We're afraid. Not only did God send Christ to grant that the Jews might fearlessly serve him, but they might serve him in holiness and righteousness and that their service might be before him. Verses 75. That in holiness they would be set apart from all the nations, set apart for this purpose to serve and to worship him. In righteousness, meaning in all ways rightly related to him, and before him all their days, meaning in his presence. And again, the radical nature of granting his people to serve him in this way, in his presence, is something that hadn't taken place since the garden. For these criteria, the criteria of fearless service, of holy service, of righteous service, and service that is before God, for these criteria to be met, sin had to be dealt with. You see, God's deliverance was both political in nature. He sent Jesus, he gave Jesus to his people, the Jews. But it was also a spiritual deliverance that was of necessity so that their service could be to him. Service that is without fear. Service in holiness and righteousness in his presence all of their days. That's why, that's the goal for what God had set by sending and by giving Jesus to the Jews. So why is Christmas so important for the church, if that's the case? Zechariah proclaims why Jesus is so important to the Jews. Why is Christmas so important for the church? 
And I want us to see in this section of Zechariah's prophecy the magnitude of Jesus. In the coming of Christ, God fulfilled his oath. That's what we saw as to why God sent Jesus, gave Jesus to the Jews. That in the coming of Jesus, he fulfilled his oath. Remember, that oath was blessing to the nations. Guess what? For any of you who are not Jewish in ethnicity, this is fulfilled in you and in me. The blessing of the nations. In Acts 15, after Peter told the the church and the leaders of the church that God had sent him to Cornelius, the centurion, and, and he had proclaimed Christ to the Gentiles, James said, Peter told us how God has visited the Gentiles using the same language of visiting here. How God has said the sending, of for the, for, for the sending of Jesus is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the nations, for the Gentiles. John in his gospel is able to say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That was one part of the oath. The other part of the oath was that Abraham's children would multiply. They would be more than the sands of the sea. And we are told in the New Testament that all who believe in Christ have been given the right to become children of God. Adopted into his family. The full right of heirs to all who believe. And then not only that, but the oath included deliverance from enemies. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And you see, this has both spiritual and political influence. This spiritual reality is that in Jesus' coming and in his death and resurrection, he has crushed the enemy. He has taken the power from sin away. As we often talk about it in the church, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That he has defeated death in his resurrection. That the spiritual reality of deliverance has been fulfilled. And the political and the physical reality of that deliverance is being fulfilled and one day will be fulfilled in its completion because Christ is the king. You hear in the king, the political reality that Jesus is the king. It's not the politics of our nation, Democrat and Republic. It is the political reality that we have a king. Christ is our king. And the scripture tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why is Christmas so important for the church? Because of the magnitude of Jesus, that in the coming of Christ, God fulfilled his oath, but it is also that Jesus enables us, along with being part of the adopted people of God. He enables us to worship and to serve him without fear 
in holiness and in righteousness in his presence. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he spoke to the church in Rome. This church that was made up of multiple ethnicities. And he said to them in Romans 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. This is your spiritual service in worship. The presenting of our bodies. Here's the amazing thing, that because of Jesus, we can do so without fear. We can do so in communion with God because of what Jesus has done for us. We serve him in that communion. One writer said this week, the core element in serving God must always be conscious fellowship with him. The reason that Jesus is so big for us is because he enables us to worship, to serve God without fear, in communion with him, in holiness, completely separated for him, that we live and we serve in this world as distinctly Christian. Jesus himself who says, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To serve in holiness and in righteousness. Because of Jesus, we are now rightly related to the Father. And we serve him in that way. And ultimately, in his presence. To answer the question, why is Jesus such a big deal? Why is Christmas so important? Why is celebrating the birth of Jesus such a big deal? We have to consider why God giving Jesus to the Jews was such a big deal. What has God done in giving Jesus to the Jews? He has brought salvation. Why did God give Jesus to the Jews? To fulfill his covenant to accomplish his loyal love. And what was God's goal in giving Jesus to the Jews? His goal was to grant them to serve him. And because Jesus accomplished all that, he is great for us, the church. We come to him, we experience him as he has given himself for us that our faith would be fed and that we would go out and serve. Let's pray as we come to the table.